Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today I'm really excited to be with Bryce to talk about Mosiah. Mosiah can be kind of tricky because there's all these journeys and the dates don't line up and there's just so much stuff happening that I think sometimes it can be a little bit confusing. And so what I want to do today is talk to Bryce about the structure of Mosiah and why why are we having these flashbacks with time periods? There's all this stuff happening at the front end, but then we go back in time, don't we, Bryce? And why is that? What's going on with the book of Mosiah? Give us an overview of why it's structured the way it is and what you think the one of the overarching messages of the text is. So I notice anomalies. I think that's what catches my attention is when something's out of the ordinary or unusual, you know, it's like you walk into a ceiling room and I think we're safe to point out what's in a ceiling room. There's pictures of them all over, but you walk into a ceiling room and one thing is out of proportion. One thing is bigger than it should be. And my mind naturally gravitates to that. It's like, oh my goodness, that chandelier, in the tr- the chairs are normal, everything else is normal, but that chandelier is unusually large for the size of this room. And, and so what caught my attention in the book of Mosiah is if you follow the dates, we start with, there's, there's three main prophets in the book of Mosiah. We've got King Benjamin at the beginning, we've got Abinadi in the middle, and Alma at the end. And you would naturally think that there's kind of a chronological list, that Benjamin comes first, followed by Abinadi, followed by Alma. But when you check out the dates, this is where you notice the anomaly. And it's not a few years, it's decades. So Abinadi and King Noah are probably 40 years before Benjamin preaches. 40 years, that's almost two generations. And so all of a sudden my mind says, okay, why is the Lord not going chronological? Why why is he putting this structure the way it is? And so the anomaly starts to ask the question, why do you put Benjamin before Abinadi? Why Abinadi in the middle? And why does Alma come afterwards? And so what I would suggest to everyone is that the Lord is drawing our attention to one, a central theme of Mosiah. And I think the central theme of Mosiah is the story of King Noah and Abinadi and their people and how blind they were. It's a disease that we often refer to as Noah blindness. And so we'll get into that in a minute, but if, you, if, if Noah blindness seems to be one of the central themes, then why put Benjamin first? And it seems to me what the Lord is saying is, Benjamin is how you prevent Noah blindness. So if you can kind of catch that, what Noah blindness is and why it's a problem, then the Lord put Benjamin first as if to say, here is something that you can do with your children, with your family, with your students, whatever stewardship you have. Here's how you make sure the people you love don't fall into the trap of Noah blindness. And then Abinadi is actually talking to the blind priests. So Abinadi's message is kind of how do you heal someone? How do you help someone who is Noah blind? And then Alma was one of those priests and has the blinders come off and he has to be healed of Noah blindness. Now, really quick for our listeners, you just unloaded a ton of stuff. I'm a visual learner, so everything Bryce just said, we're going to post in the show notes visuals where you can see the multiple flashbacks in the text. So what I would encourage you is if everything he just said, you're like, wait, that's I'm swimming in deep water use these visuals that we're going to post to help you see what Bryce talked about, because the visuals help the the listeners see what's happening, right? And this brings up an interesting point when you study the scriptures. Sometimes as we read them, we get get focused on the chapter level, the what's happening in this chapter. We think left to right, like sequentially, Right. right? And we don't stop and go big picture and say, wait a minute, let me see this book as a big picture, I've got I've got Benjamin coming first, and then Abinadi, and then Alma, 
And so to me, the organizer here for the book of Mosiah is centers around Noah's blind people. And Benjamin's message is how to prevent Noah blindness. Abinadi is how do you help someone who is Noah blind. And Alma's message is how do you heal from Noah blindness. And don't worry, Bryce is going to explain what Noah blindness is. I want to show you the structure first so you can kind of see the structure. Then when we get into what is Noah blindness... You can go back to King Benjamin's message and say, oh my goodness, I see how that message would prevent you from having that problem. So I want to give the structure first so that you can see. I just think it's significant that three prophets and this central message, how to prevent, how to help someone take the blinders off, and how to be healed if you ever were Noah blind and made some dumb decisions, how do you find healing afterwards? Because some people, there's a lot of Almas in the world who, while they were Noah blind, made a mistake, and now they're paying for that mistake. Like poor Alma has to deal with his mistake over and over and over again. But there's a great message in healing in Alma. Yeah. I think for most of us, we are Alma. We all mess up. Once we talk about Noah blindness, I think you'll realize how universal it is. And almost all of us at some point in our life are Noah blind. And so this is something we're all going to have to deal with. Just life. My world for, I mean, I have 10 children and my whole world has been around youth of the church. And I would dare say that this is the prevailing problem among the youth of the church. And it's certainly not unique to youth. I think adults deal with it. And all of us, you know, there's, there comes a point in time where a lot of us are Noah blind. Yeah. So maybe we ought to jump into that. Any no. comment you want to make about that big structure, Mike? No, I, mean, I love it. Look at the, the whole, Mosiah is its own thing. And even the word Mosiah, we're going to, I'm going to geek out on some of this later, but the name Mosiah, it's a Hebrew word. And the word Mosiah is the book, which is like mind blowing. It's a it's a macro pun which Joseph Smith had no exposure to. So multiple levels here, but Bryce is nailing this. Like the whole pattern of the text is teaching a lesson. So let's talk about Noah blindness. If you want to follow along, I'm going to start in Mosiah chapter eleven, and let's see if we can define what Noah blindness is. So Nephi leaves his brethren, but stays relatively in the land of Nephi, and then under the rule of King Mosiah I, which was Benjamin's dad, they leave the land of Nephi, which apparently was the better land. I'm guessing that Nephi was the better land. And so Zenith wants to come back and dwell in the land of Nephi, which is where the Lamanites dwell. This is not a huge group of Nephites. This is not the main body of the Nephites. This is just kind of an offshoot. So there's not a ton of Nephites here. And King Noah is their king, and in verse 2, he's taking many wives and concubines. Now, if this is a small group of Nephites, where is he gathering these women from? This isn't a large congregation. This is a small little group. We don't know their numbers, but it's relatively small. So these have to be our, our daughters, our moms, our sisters, our wives. In what world would you consider a man who takes your daughter as his concubine wife your friend? He's taking our women. And then in verse 3, he's taxing us at 20%. Now, I can, I, I can deal with a high tax like 20% if it was going for the good of everyone, but look at verse 4, what's he doing with our tax? He's supporting himself. Verse 6, he's supporting his own laziness. And then if you want to jump down to verse 14, he spend his days in riotous living. So he's taking our women, he's taxing us so that he can live a riotous life, and we're supporting this? In what world is this man your friend? Verse 8, he built many elegant buildings, mainly for himself. Verse 9, he built a spacious tower. And then in verse 15, he builds a wine press so he can have an abundance of wine. In what world is this man your friend? And yet, what do the people think of him? Now, maybe, maybe we can understand why. Look at verse 2. This is all Mosiah 11 still. Back in verse 2, he did cause his people to commit sin. 
Oh, maybe you begin to see why they think of him as a friend. He's taking their women and taxing them and living a lazy, riotous life, but he's allowing them to sin. In verse 7, he's deceiving them with vain and flattering words. Maybe that will help you understand why they see him as a friend, not a foe. Vain and flattering words. And then in verse 12, he, he builds a tower, a tower to look out for the enemy. In other words, he made them feel safe. So even though he's taking their women and taxing them and, and abusing their money to live a, way, a, a lazy life, he's letting them sin, he's making them feel safe, he's flattering them, and then in verse 15, he's sharing his wine with them. Do you see the blinders go on? Now, unfortunately, that describes a lot of people, that a lot of things in our lives that come in, flatter us, make us feel safe, allow us to sin, and instead of seeing foe, we think we see friend. But there's always a price. And the blinders go on. So Abinadi comes among them. Now, Abinadi is there to protect and save them from coming dangers. Prophets usually see the enemy coming a long way. But notice what Abinadi says. In end of verse 20, Abinadi's message is, except you repent, the Lord will visit you in anger. Verse 21, he's quoting the Lord and saying, I will deliver them into the hands of their enemies. They'll be brought into bondage. They'll be afflicted by the hand of their enemies. Now, that doesn't sound like my friend, right? That doesn't sound like someone who loves and cares about me. You're not being very nice to me. And so the blinders come on, and instead of seeing friend, I see foe. Noah blindness is when you can't tell the difference. You've, you mistake friend from foe. You look at a Noah of your life. And I've seen lots of Noah's. Sometimes someone will get involved in drugs or some substance abuse or some addiction. And the more they get involved, the more they feel safe. They feel protected. And instead of seeing foe that's destroying my life, they see friend. They see Noah as their friend. And then along comes a mom or a dad or a beloved friend who says, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to yourself? And, and, and speaks harshly out of love, but that harshness comes across as, you're not my friend, you're my enemy. Or you're judging me. You're judging me. And they're gonna, that's the very used word they're going to use. So go to the very last verse of chapter 11. The eyes of the people were blinded. Notice it's the people. They looked at Noah and saw friend. They looked at Abinadi and saw foe. The story kind of continues in chapter 12. So one through eight is Abinadi's message, and he is not holding back. But the reality here is his message was delivered to save them. The truth is that their best friend was Abinadi. Everything Abinadi predicts will happen is going to happen to this people under Limhi. And poor Limhi is the victim of all of this. He is in bondage. And so if you look at one through eight, this is what Abinadi is telling will happen to them if they don't repent. Verse one, I'll visit you in anger. You'll be brought into bondage. Verse two, smitten on the cheek, driven by man, slain, devoured their flesh. Verse four, sore afflictions and famine and pestilence. They shall howl all the day long. Verse 5, they shall have burdens lashed upon their backs. They shall be driven. Verse 6, the Lord would send forth hail. They'll be smitten by the east wind. Insects shall pester their land, devour their grain. Now, from the perspective of a blind people, they're saying, you're not my friend. This isn't how friends talk to me. Well, yeah, it is. Friends who love you. And so notice what they do. Verse 9, they were angry with him. Let's check out the antecedents. Who's they? The very people Abinadi came to save are angry at Abinadi. And they took him and carried him bound before the king. Now, verse 13, can you see their blindness? Oh, king, what great evil hast thou done? This is the kid who's getting into drugs. And he's looking at the drugs saying, hey, what's wrong with this? They make me feel safe. They, make me, they bring peace to my life. What great evil are they doing in my life? 
it, it's the young person whose friends are pulling him away from gospel truths. And, and he turns to his parents and say, what are my friends, what great evil are my friends doing? And then notice they use the J word. Verse 13, you can almost always recognize a Noah blind person by the J word. What great sins have thy people committed that we should be condemned of God or judged of this man? And there it is. Don't judge me. The abinadies of our life, we think we're, are judging us when we are Noah blind. You don't know him. You don't understand him. I know him. I understand him. He cares about me. But we turn on Abinadi. Now, what do they ultimately do to their friend? They burn him. And unfortunately, I've watched a lot of people who are Noah blind burn the relationship they have with their parents, burn the relationship they have with their real friends, their true friends, the ones that care about them. They burn their relationship with their bishop. They burn their relationship with the prophet, with the church, because for a moment, the blinders went on and they looked at all these people and saw foe. And they yell at their mom and dad and they see foe, but the reality is they don't have a better friend in the world than their mom. I once taught a young man who was just coming out of rehab, and we taught this very lesson. And I was a little nervous. I didn't know how he'd react, and he was really quiet the whole time. And then at the end, his hand shot up, and he said, I've got to say something. And he said that when it was his mom who sent him to rehab. He says, when I was sent to rehab by my mom, I was so angry at her. I was so mad at my mom. And there's the blinders, right? My mom is my enemy. How dare she send me to rehab? He said, I was so mad at my mom. And then he just started to weep. And he said, but now I realize I didn't have a better friend in the whole world than my mom. That's what Noah blindness does. It blinds you to who your friends are. I can't tell you how many parent-child relationships I've seen, husband-wife relationships I've seen that got burned because one of them was Noah blind and forgot who their real friend was and saw a Noah of their life as a friend. And we turn, sometimes couples turn against each other. This is the cause of divorce. This is the cause of broken relationships. Now, unfortunately, it always has an ugly ending. Satan is cruel, and he always pulls those blinders off just at the last moment. So let's go to Mosiah chapter 19. Let's watch the blinders come off. So this is going to be in the narrative where the enemies of the people, the Lamanites are coming in and wrecking them, and they're running. And Noah's like, let's go. Isn't that where we're at yep, right here? Yep. Mosiah 19. Now, it starts with a man named Gideon who finally saw Noah for who he was, and that was an enemy, and he, can't, he comes to destroy Noah. That's what you do to your enemies. You destroy your enemies. So Gideon shows up and says, I'm going to slay you, and they're kind of fighting, and while they're fighting, they get up on the tower, they see the Lamanites, and King Noah sees that the Lamanites are coming in, and he says, Gideon, verse 7, spare me, for the Lamanites are upon us, and they'll destroy me, they'll destroy us, and they'll destroy my people. Now, verse 8, if I could shout from the rooftops, this is the reality of the Noahs of our lives. And now the king was not so much concerned about his people as he was about his own life. That's the reality about the Noahs. They are really only concerned about themselves, and they are using you. But you think they're your friend. Um, they just have a pull on you. But the reality is they're not interested in you. They're interested in themselves. So what did this great man that they thought was their friend say to them? He says, run. Verse 9, the king commanded that the people should flee before the Lamanites. So we're running. So I want you to picture this. The Dunfords have 10 children. So my wife and I, my, my wife Jennifer and I have 10 children. There's no way my five-year-old Owen is going to outrun the Lamanites. So I pick up Owen. I'm going to hold Owen. Well, I also have an eight-year-old. No way my eight-year-old outruns the Lamanites. So my older son, Spencer, is going to pick up my eight-year-old. 
And then I have an 11-year-old. He can't outrun the Lamanites. And luckily, I have a son-in-law. He's going to pick up my 11-year-old. But what about my 14 and 15-year-old? I have a sweet 15-year-old girl. There's no way she's going to outrun the Lamanites. And there's no more adult males that can pick up a 15-year-old teenage girl. So we're running. The Dunford family is running from the Lamanites. But we're not running very fast because Hallie and Logan are pulling us back. They're not large enough to outrun the Lamanites. And pretty soon I can tell that the Lamanites are going to catch up to our family. So in this moment of crisis, who do I turn to? I turn to the man I think is my friend. I turn to Noah. And in that moment, guess what my friend tells me to do? Leave them. And because I'm blind, because I don't see who he really is, I drop my son. I let go of my wife's hand. My older son drops our eight-year-old. My son-in-law drops our 11-year-old. And the adult males run. Now, I think you can imagine what Lamanite armies are going to do when they catch up to my wife and my children. So the men get to a clearing. And all of a sudden, they start to realize, they have this moment of clarity. What have we done? What have we done? And the men decide they're going to go back. Verse 12, there was many that would not leave them but rather stay and perish with them. The rest left their wives. And then later on, they're going to say, I'm going to go back. Verse 19, they had sworn in their hearts that they would return to the land of Nephi. And if their wives and their children were slain, they would tarry with them and seek revenge. And then the king steps up and says, oh, no, you're not. You're not going back. What's funny is he has no authority now. Yeah. Now he's stripped of all the accruements of kingship, and he's just like them, and they see him for what he is. And the blinders come off. And this is one of the most cruel acts that Satan does. The blinders come off when it's too late. My family's been destroyed. The Lamanites have ravished my family. And I finally see who Noah is when it's too late. So what do they do to Noah? When the blinders come off, finally, after they've lost everything, they've burned Abinadi, they've let their wives and their children die, when the blinders finally come off, what do they see? They see enemy. And what do they do to their enemy in verse 20? Mosiah 19, 20. They, they burn him. They burn him. That's what they did to Abinadi when they thought Abinadi was their enemy. And they burn Noah. But what do they have left? What do they have left in their life? Abinadi's gone. They burned Abinadi. Their wives are gone. Their children are gone. And they're going to have to deal with this. That's Noah blindness. Noah comes in lots of forms. Noah is sometimes a teenager's friends who are pulling him off the straight and narrow path and into a path of sin. Noah's are drugs and addiction and substance abuse. Noah's are philosophies that pull us away from truths of God. Noah's are organizations, um, people who we begin to think are our friends. Um, sometimes Noah is just an individual. I watch it. I watch the youth, a sweet young person, and a Noah comes into their life in whatever form. Sometimes it's an actual individual. Sometimes it's a group of friends. Sometimes it's an ideology. It's really sad for me, Bryce, when I see when it's a spouse. I have a friend who has a spouse who just started getting down the rabbit holes of anti-literature and has become an atheist, throwing this Noah message. It's it is. Just tough. It's so hard. And then, and then when the blinders go on and you see friend instead of foe, or foe instead of friend. People burn the prophet. They burn the truths of the gospel. They burn their relationship with God. They walk away from God himself. And they burn their relationship because they see God as their enemy. 
They see religion as their enemy. They see the gospel. They see the prophet. They see their bishop. They see their mom, their dad. They see their faithful friends as their enemy. And they often use that J word. You're judging. How dare you judge? You're being so judgmental. Jesus wouldn't say that to me. Yeah. They, Jesus, they even pulled this on a Benedi where they, they try to trap a Benedi. Well, you don't sound like somebody that yeah. Jesus would send. Well, you're not publishing glad tidings. Yeah. You're not publishing peace. You're being mean to us. And it's that J word. You're judging us. And because they're blind to the real source of happiness, they often do things like they burn a Benedi. They let their families die. Um, they, they, they transgress, they commit sins. And when those blinders come off, if those blinders come off, they're going to have to deal with those transgressions. Poor Alma. Alma was blind for a while. And then when the blinders come off and he realized who Noah is and he runs away, unfortunately, it just keeps coming back to haunt him and over and over and over again. Noah blindness is ugly and it affects so many people. And I just think this is why I think it's the central theme of the book of Mosiah. So, so why would the Lord place Mosiah, the book of Mosiah, the way it is? Because he says, look, you want to prevent this? Now let's look at Benjamin. Benjamin's whole message was, you've got to do one thing. If you want to turn to Mosiah chapter 4, the very end of Benjamin's message, he says over and over again, you've got to do this one thing. So go to Mosiah chapter 4 and notice... Starting in verse 12, if you do this, and then all these things will happen. And I know it doesn't say it because it hasn't brought up Noah blindness in the book, but I think the idea here is if you do this, you won't be Noah blind. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've heard Mosiah 4.14 quoted as a commandment. I'm not supposed to let my children go hungry or naked or quarrel one with another. But that's not a commandment. That's not given as a commandment. It's given as a natural consequence of doing this. If you do this, then you won't let your children quarrel. It's a consequence of doing this. So what is this? Go back to Mosiah chapter 4, verse 11. The whole point of King Benjamin's address is that you learn one lesson. And if you will read Mosiah chapter 4, verse 11, you'll know what that lesson is. I would that ye should remember and always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness and his goodness, and his long-suffering towards you, unworthy creatures, and humble yourselves even into the depths of humility. The great saving lesson that prevents Noah blindness is to remember the greatness of God and your own nothingness. No, so, so think back over the whole discourse of King Benjamin. Isn't that what he's saying? Even though I'm your king, I'm nothing. God is great, and I'm nothing. He talks about beggars. We are beggars. All of chapter 3, Mosiah chapter 3, is simply about the greatness of God. If you'll remember the greatness of God and the nothingness of man, you'll never be blind. But King Noah's message is the opposite. Noah's message is that man is great. Or at least that he's great. That he's great. (laughs) Right. And you don't need God because every time the Nephites fall... They get that idea. They're Noah blind, and they say, I don't need God. In Helaman, where the Nephites turn wicked, they come out and say, who is God? Our cities are great. We don't need him. Man is great, God. We don't need. But it's the reminder that God is great. Something that is so applicable today, don't you think, Bryce? I mean, I see this on social media when the prophet, President Nelson, came out and said we need to have a fast. I can't tell you how many posts I I have read where people say, what does fasting or what does praying have to do with a virus? Same kind of message, right? Man's knowledge is greater than God's commandments. Did you see that? It's man's way of solving this problem is better. Why are you fasting? What's interesting, I even saw Latter-day Saints criticizing President Nelson about Well, what does a fast have to do with a virus? You got it. It's that same thing. Now, just to to kind of bookend Mormon's teachings, jump to Helaman. Before the Savior comes, while the the Nephites have fallen into wickedness and the Lamanites are actually growing in righteousness, it's this same idea. You have forgotten that one lesson. 
So if you'll jump to Helaman chapter 12, Mormon kind of interjects this beautiful message in Helaman at the downfall of the Nephites. He says in verse 2, and thus, well, even verse 1, how false and, all, and also the unsteadiness of the hearts of the children of men. Verse 2, Helaman 12, 2, we may see that at the very time when the Lord does prosper his people, yea, in the increase of their fields, their flocks, their herds in gold and silver and all manner of precious. In other words, when God blesses you, the temptation is to think that you are great. And go on a little bit later. Then is the time that they do harden their hearts and do forget the Lord their God and do trample under their feet the Holy One because of their ease and their exceeding prosperity. In other words, your blessings cause you to think that you are great and you don't need God. Verse 3, if you're going to do this, then the Lord is going to visit you with death and terror and famine to remind you that you do need God. And so he says in verse 7, oh, the, oh, how great is the nothingness of the children of men. It's that same idea. It's the same message of King Benjamin. If you forget the greatness of God, and if you confuse that with the greatness of man, then you've got Noah blinders on. But if you will remember the greatness of God, notice how he just, in, in Mormon's lament, he says, that, verse 6, they do not desire that the Lord their God who created them should rule and reign over them. But someone who is great and glorious and wonderful, I, we have no problem having someone great rule over us. But we get Noah blind, or we, we, we confuse that idea, and we begin to think that man is great, or some man is great, or I am the man that's great, and God is not. I don't need God. And therefore, I fall susceptible to Noah blindness. It makes perfect sense why the Lord would place Benjamin first, right? Here's the preventative medicine. Here's the vitamins that will prevent the problem. So as you raise your children, the question is, how do you raise your children to constantly remember the greatness of God and the nothingness of man? That's how you prevent your children from being Noah blind, is when they come to know the greatness of God. When they sing in their hearts, I stand all amazed. They will be less susceptible to Noah blindness. Then Abinadi's message is, how do you pull the blinders off? So just two minutes on Abinadi's message, how does Abinadi get Alma to take his blinders off? It's like Alma is the one person that's listening. I really like how the church made a video and it really portrays this really well where Alma's the audience of one and the answer is the spirit. For me, what really convicted me, Bryce, was when I felt the spirit manifest itself to me that there really is truth. And what's interesting, so Abinadi teaches Jesus. Like who Jesus is. But it's a very different Jesus than Benjamin taught. What was the Jesus Benjamin taught? How great he is, how majestic he is. What's the Jesus that Abinadi teaches? Severing servant. There you go. You see the difference? So once again, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the prevention and Jesus is the cure. But you've got to see a different Jesus. What Alma needed to see is a Jesus that would heal him. With, so Abinadi quotes Isaiah saying, with his stripes, we are healed. Now, Benjamin didn't quote that verse because Benjamin is, let's see the grandeur of God. Abinadi says, let's see the humility and the kindness and the suffering God who will heal you. The other thing Abinadi does is he reminds him of the commandments. Let me be clear that you know what the commandments are, what you're doing wrong. So a basic understanding of God's expectations and commandments, and then Abinadi just teaches Jesus to these priests. The suffering servant is a Abinadi's Jesus. That's a very different Jesus than Benjamin taught. But it, it pulls the blinders off. Now, what's Alma's message? If you've been Noah blind and you made mistakes, what's Alma's message? Alma's whole message is, you can clean the slate. You can. You may have to pay a debt to justice. But even then, 
even in that debt to justice, God will be with you. Mosiah chapter 24, the Lord did strengthen their backs that they could bear their burdens with ease. Therefore, they did cheerfully submit to all the will of the Lord. But Mosiah 18, Alma takes them to the waters of Mormon and he baptizes them. Now, I'm assuming everyone that follows Alma had the blinders come off, that they were at one point Noah blind, that they thought Noah was great, but now they realize the truth and every one of them, what do they do? They go back to covenants. They make covenants with the Lord that bring cleansing into their life. Alma buries himself in the water with Helam, not that he's baptizing himself. Let's be very clear. Alma did not baptize himself, but Alma wanted to show the Lord his attrition his repentance. And so he buries himself in the water as an act of repentance and sorrow and a desire for a new beginning. And you tell me when Alma came out of that water, do you think he was any less clean than Helam? Alma's message is that God will forgive. Even though you abandoned him, even though you burned his prophet, God will forgive and he will be with you. And if you repent, he will be with you. I love Alma's message because I need Alma's message. Everyone who's ever known a blind and burns an Abinadi, destroys some relationship, makes mistakes, needs to hear Alma's message. Alma's message is hope. And if you missed it with him, with Alma, you get it again with his son. Alma's message is that you can overcome mistakes, that you can, you can be clean. If you were not temple worthy because you were Noah blind for a while, you can be temple worthy. And so do you see those three, those three prophets? Benjamin, who helps us prevent Noah blindness. Abinadi, who helps us take the blinders off because of Jesus. You've got to see that Jesus is the answer. And then Alma who helps you understand that Jesus is the healer and that he does forgive sin and he will be with us again. Alma was a wicked priest of Noah, but became the high priest, the church leader. And that's a great message. And I just think, Mike, that's kind of the structure of Mosiah. Mosiah is a beautiful book and very deep. Now we'll jump into chapter by chapter later, but I want Mike to take a few minutes and just kind of walk you through his overview of the book of Mosiah as well. So good. I'm going to throw this out here as far as like things not to miss in the, in the text. The whole book of Mosiah is a chiastic structure. And what I mean by that is it begins and ends the same. And then the second point of the book of Mosiah is parallel to the second to the last point. And the third point is parallel to the third to the last point. Probably my favorite author that's really shown a lot of this structurally is going to be John Welch. Uh, he's done some stuff on this, but there's others. Uh, why am I sharing this? Because the main point is what Bryce is talking about. And the main thing of Mosiah is Jesus. That's the main thing. And so Abinadi's message about who Jesus is, is actually is structurally, if you were to look at the whole macro text of Mosiah, and it's a standalone text. The, the main message is Jesus and who he is. And the main point of it is where he just gets to the root of who Jesus is. And I think this is, Bryce, I think this is like multi-level punning on his name. Abinadi, one, one way to read his name is Ab Ben Nadi. So the father, Ab Ben, son, Nadi, messenger. He's the messenger of the father and the son. And so if this is intentional, it's pretty cool. I also think that the name Noah is pretty intentional. Noah or Noah is uh, to rest. And so the author of Mosiah is punning on Noah's name because Noah, what does he do? He rests. Laziness he, yeah, rest. He rests, but what are you doing to finance his restful life? That's right. I'm, I'm working my fanny off so that he can rest, which is an interesting play because you've got the Noah of the Old Testament, which rested after the destruction, yeah. and Noah of the Book of Mormon, which rested in light of the labor of his people to work. Yeah. So both, it's kind of a play on the word rest. How do you rest? You righteously rest versus you unrighteously rest. Yeah, the punning is significant. And the author 
author of Mosiah even says he even makes his throne so that he could rest his bodies. I mean, the punning going on in this stuff is really good. Some other things you don't want to miss, Mosiah 15, it's his message of how Jesus is both the father and the son. I'm just going to read verse three, the father, because he was conceived by the power of God and the son, because of the flesh, thus becoming the father and the son. We don't have time in this podcast to do this, but we will flesh this stuff out. This is very deep theological teaching on who Jesus is. And the center of the book of Mosiah is a Benedite's message. I love it. What's great is going back to Benjamin, Benjamin defines that Jesus is our father by the covenant. Yes. So this this whole message is weaved throughout Mosiah. So you've got a Mosiah chapter 5, verse 7, because of the covenant that you've made, you shall be called the children of Christ. Yes. His sons and his daughters. He is your father. And then that comes to the point in Abinadi's teaching where Jesus is father and son. We don't believe they're the same being. Let's clarify our doctrine, but we believe that in in some sense, in many senses, yes. Jesus is our Father. Yes, and I and I got to say, I have empathy for people that do take the Trinitarian view of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost being like the same individual, because I understand the text can be confusing, and even our enemies have criticized the Book of Mormon and say, "Hey, it's Trinitarian." That's not what Abenadi is saying. So we'll unpack what 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 he is saying. But yes, make um, Jesus your father in that sense through the covenant, not in the father of your spirit born in premortal life. Yeah. But it, there are senses in which you need to make Jesus your father, and you do that by the covenant that Abinadi taught. And that seems to be the central message: is find Jesus and make him your father, yes. your spiritual father. So overarching concept of the text, chiastic, some other things you don't want to miss is there's no other way. There's no other way to the heavens. There's no other way to the Father except through Jesus. And I think this is a common teaching today that, hey, everything's true. Bryce has his truth. Mike has his truth. There's your truth. There's my truth. And I love Mosiah 5, 8 through 10. I'm not going to read it, but this is essentially where King Benjamin says, there's no other way nor name nor means whereby salvation cometh only in and through the blood of Christ. In Mosiah 4, 8, he says, there's no other conditions. Jesus sets them, not us. It's Jesus. There it is. Good stuff. Other things not, not to miss, that Jesus allows suffering. Abinadi suffers death, and it served many purposes. And what's interesting, there's two different sufferings. There's Limhi suffering and Alma suffering. Limhi suffering was your own doing. Alma suffering seems to be, no, this isn't suffering that we didn't bring upon ourselves. And so there's both types of suffering here, is that that Alma is allowed to suffer even though he's trying to be righteous. Limhi is suffering because of poor choices. And suffering really does play a role. People don't change until it hurts. And pain is a means of changing. And so the Lord says, look, I need you to change. And so pain is going to facilitate that change. And there is a time and a place for suffering. And so watch for that as you read through Mosiah, because suffering and healing go hand in hand. Yeah. But there's there's two different sufferings in the book of Mosiah. Yes. Some other things you don't want to miss, there's multiple journeys, and the journeys in the back and forth and the multiple flashbacks contribute to the complexity of the text. Uh, so I'm just going to throw this to Joseph Smith. If you're Joseph Smith and you're just you're just writing this, you're just making this up, good luck with all the flashbacks and all the journeys, and then take them and then later, a hundred years later, people that are going to analyze the text are going to show that this is chiastic, that the entire text is structured in a way to focus chiastically on a Benedict's preaching and sermon. So to me, this is this is Jedi level textual construction as a as a geek out guy. And a lot of like I apologize, a lot of this doesn't really translate in a podcast. I'm a very visual learner. So when I when I'm in front of a group of people that I'm teaching, I'll put this stuff up on the board just to kind of give them a taste to say, can you see what's happening here? Mosiah is very carefully constructed. Another way to look at that before you move on is everyone has a different journey back home. And so you get to see 
everyone, in the end, everyone comes home. Everyone has a different journey. So everyone that leaves eventually comes back home. But many of them get lost and they wander for a time. So many, many journeys and everyone makes it back home, just like here we are on earth and many of us have different journeys, but hopefully we all make it back home. That's so good. It's a message of our journey. So we talked about Jesus and, and his suffering and how he's the father and the son. Some other things, Mosiah 9.1 um, this is where Zenith is going back up to the land of Nephi, and he says, hey, I saw the good which was among them. I like that as if I was teaching a lesson to my children, I would say you could just do a little mini lesson on Mosiah 9.1 and say, hey, see the good. See the good in your siblings, especially if they're cramped up in a house and maybe you're together for six more weeks or I don't know how long it's going to be. Hey, let's look for the good in one another because we could drive each other crazy, right? Um, Bryce talked a lot about Noah blindness. Uh, there's Lamanite blindness as well, which we'll flesh out later. But in Mosiah 10, the author says, hey, the Lamanites have their version of blindness, which is fascinating. They always felt wronged and then they got wroth. Yeah. And we've brought that up in a, our, one of our very first podcasts on the Book of Mormon. And so it's that Lamanite blindness. How do you respond to trial? You feel wronged, you get wroth, you turn against God. That's Lamanite blindness. Yeah. Um, so the stirring up is a theme. This is like number four on my list here. Um, the people stir up each other to get mad at Abinadi. And that to me is the classic issue of what Satan serves theologically, at least my big picture packaging of who he is. He loves to stir people up to anger. I really like the notion in, I'm going to go, I'm going to go here with Disney, Ursula. Ursula takes Ariel and Ariel has this, she just has this struggle within. And what does Ursula do? She stirs that up and she gets Ariel to kind of follow her. The irony to the whole story is the king always had the power to give Ariel legs the whole time. He's the one that really gives her legs, but Ursula is the one that stirs this up and, and gets her to rebel against her dad. And th this is where the people essentially get Noah stirred up and then they kill him. And what's perfect, what I really love is it, it, we see this in the video too. I love the way the video portrays it. There's a point in time when Noah's like, do I maybe let him free? Do I set Abinadi free? Maybe Abinadi is right. And the servants, the priests and the servants of the king are like stirring him up. And they're like, no, you got to kill him. He said mean things to you. Yeah. Um, we see this today on social media where people love to stir it up. The social media can be used for this and it can also be used for truth. Hopefully, you know, if what we're talking about today resonates with you, hey, share it. Let's spread light. I got to throw this verse in when Amalekite, we'll get to, into this in Alma, when Amalekiah goes into the Lamanites, he deliberately stirs them up to anger. And then I love this verse, behold, his designs were to stir up the Lamanites to anger against the Nephites. This he did that he might usurp power over them. What verse is that? That's Alma 43, 8. That's good. In other words, if I can stir you up and make you angry, then I can control you. And that's one main reason why people get us angry. They want you to be angry so that they can control you. It's a tool. It's a tool. I just, I got to throw that out there in terms of stirring up. You know, I can't even tell you how many times I've read where people say, I was really, really angry. And then I did this and I'm thinking, oh man, this is a principle, principle, you know, concentrated truth package for application. So Mike Day advice, if you're really, really angry and you're tempted to say something or do something, don't like just pause. I can't tell you how many times I've said something in anger and I never went back and said, Mike, that was really smart what you said, right? That was a good choice. Uh, some other things you don't want to miss, the, how the wicked question truth. We'll see this in Mosiah 12, 19 through 24. I really think it's important to see that the priests of Noah are questioning the true source of, of knowledge and they're twisting scripture to attack it. It's a lesson on how to discredit a prophet. Yes. And the world is doing the same things today. How do you discredit a prophet? One, two, three, four, and you can almost see the world doing one, two, three, four today. Can't wait to get to that. It's like the Book of Mormon was almost, it's almost like it was written for us. I'm just throwing that out there, Mormon 834. Uh, okay, uh, you don't know the power of your words, another lesson. Uh, Mosiah 17, two through four, Alma's in the audience. And Abinadi may have felt like, man, did I even succeed? 
and I believe this, I believe Abenadi gets to the heavens and then he sees Almadua's work and he sees Almadua's thing and he's like, okay, now I see. Uh, this is a great lesson for missionaries. If you're a missionary and you serve five months or five days or 20 months and you think, well, was it even worth it? Read Mosiah 17, two through four. My ward is just I mean, uh, the moms are happy, but I know some of these missionaries are probably like, I just got out there. I just talked to a missionary the other day who just got home and he's like, I was really unsettled coming back from this foreign country. I had only been there five months. And I love what he said to me. He said, but when my mission president called me on the phone, that I felt this peace wash over me and I felt okay. And I think a lot of kids are struggling right now. Like, does this count? Don't underestimate the power of your words. Just that's Mosiah 17, two through four. Peer pressure, the power of the mob, Mosiah 17, 11 and 12. The mob is a big deal. And this lesson's in there too. The mob has power. So both light and darkness. Okay, I'm going to wax a little bit nerdy. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Princess Bride. Do you remember Wazini? I love it when he's talking to what's I forget the name of the the dude who's uh, got the blindfold on. But there's this line in there where they're they're talking Prince Humperdinck. Is that what it is? And he says, you never get involved in a land war in Asia. And why? Why do you never want to get involved in a land war in Asia? You're going to get wrecked, right? Napoleon does it. Doesn't work out. Hitler, for some reason, had this brilliant plan. Let's get into Asia, and I'm going to take over Russia. Didn't work out. And why do I say this is a principle in Mosiah? Because in Mosiah 21, 1 through 12, Limhi, who's the son of Noah, gets it in his, his mind to, like, let's fight against uh, the Lamanites, and he just gets wrecked over and over again. And the message is, there's just some times when if you're doing something and it's not working and you keep trying and it's not working, maybe you should change your tactic. Never getting involved in land war in Asia is a really th important thing not to miss. And what I mean by that, once again, is if it's not working, change your tactic. Um, I love the idea, and Bryce talked about this, uh, God's mighty power of deliverance in Mosiah 22. God is mighty to deliver us. And then the end of Mosiah, Mosiah 26 and 27, the Lord isn't done with us yet. What's interesting to me is the end of the text really covers people that are troubled. We, we get back to this message of, okay, we've got no blindness creeping up again. What I'm about to talk about now is a word that would not have been known to Joseph Smith. He would not have known this word. And it's, it's Moshia. It's not Mosiah, but it's Moshia. And the word means savior. And it's not translated in the King James. So I'm, what I'm reading is Deuteronomy 22, 27. You can go to Blue Letter Bible and you can look this up. Uh, the actual, the Hebrew word, it says, the people in danger cry out, but there is no Moshiach. Deuteronomy 22, 27. The word Moshiach, and I believe this is Mosiah, the word is translated as savior. And this is an interesting paper written by John Sawyer in Vetus Testamentum. Uh, he wrote this in 1965. The paper is called What Was a Moshia? And I will post this and you can read it for yourself. John Sawyer writes this paper and then John Welch later, he's a, John Welch is a member of the church. He takes John Sawyer's article and he packages it for a Latter-day Saint audience talking about this one word. Now, the plural of Moshia is... Uh, Moshi'im, im in, in Hebrew, if you add the im to it, it's plural. And so this word Moshia is in the Hebrew text, but not in the King James. And what is a Moshia? According to Sawyer, these are the, the things that fit the, the description of a Moshia. Number one, a Moshia is a victorious hero appointed by God. Number two, a Moshia is one that liberates a chosen people from oppression controversy, injustice, after they cry out for help. Are you starting to see a pattern? Number three, their deliverance is usually accomplished by means of nonviolent escape or negotiation. Think about that. Think about the book of Mosiah. Is there nonviolent escape or negotiation going on in that text? Number four, the immediate result of the coming of a Moshia was, quote, an escape from injustice and a return to a state of justice where each man possesses his rightful property. And then finally, on a larger scale, final victory means the coming of Moshiim to rule like judges over Israel. In other words, Moshiim are righteous judges. 
what happens at the end of the book of Mosiah? They establish judges. Fascinating. That's cool, Mike. So really quick, who are some Moshiim in the text? Mosiah 1. Like, was that even his name? I'd like to think that maybe maybe it was his throne name. Omni 1 verse 12. Mosiah number 1 flees danger. He does exactly what Sawyer says the Moshiim do. Number 2, King Benjamin. He defends his people. Words of Mormon 113. Number 3, Abinadi works to save his people from the unjust rule of King Noah in Mosiah 11 through 17. By the way, Abinadi, nonviolent. He gets wrecked. He gets killed. Number four, Alma, Alma the Elder. He saves his people through several escapes, not just one, but several escapes. He is a Moshiim. Number five, Limhi escapes to Zarahemla miraculously at night, this nonviolent escape. And then finally, to me, the ultimate Moshiim, number six, Jesus. The heart of the entire book of Mosiah is that Jesus is a Moshiach to all of mankind, a nonviolent deliverer through nonviolent means of escape. To me, when I read that article by John Welch, where he reads Sawyer's article, who breaks down the Hebrew, I remember just the first time I read that, it was like electricity. It was like, I read this and I'm like, this is so deep. And that word is not in the King James. Joseph Smith is reading Moshiach translated as Savior. Joseph Smith, he's 23 when this is being produced. He doesn't know Hebrew, but there it is embedded in the text. And so, uh, you guys, I hope you like that as much as I do. This is so cool that that is what Mosiah is teaching. Nonviolent deliverance, uh, a means of escape, and the ultimate deliverer is Jesus. And all of these people, whether it's Limhi or it's Alma or it's Abinadi or it's even Zenith where he's looking for the good, every one of these heroes, they're like a type of Christ. And it's beautiful. Now, how do we apply it? Maybe in our conversations with people, we have this approach where we, you know, somebody throws a barb at us and we return good and we be meek and we'd be like the suffering servant. Let me share this from Frederick Farrar in his book, The Life of Christ. I think it has a lot to do with how we can apply this. Um, This is where Jesus walks away from the people trying to throw him um, off the cliff in Nazareth. Farrar wrote, perhaps his silence, perhaps the calm nobleness of his bearing, perhaps the dauntless innocence of his gaze overawed them. Apart from anything supernatural, there seems to have been in the presence of Jesus a spell of mystery and majesty, which even his most ruthless and hardened enemies acknowledged and before which they voluntarily bowed. It was to this that he owed his escape when the maddened Jews in the temple took up stones to stone him. It was this that made the bold and bigoted officers of the Sanhedrin unable to arrest him as he taught in public during the Feast of the Tabernacles at Jerusalem. It was this that made the armed band of his enemies at his mere look fall before him to the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane. Suddenly, quietly, he asserted his freedom, waved aside his captors, and overawing them by his simple glance, passed through their their midst unharmed. Similar events have occurred in history and continue still to occur. And then I love this sentence. There is something in defenseless and yet dauntless dignity that calms even the fury of a mob. And that's what's going on in Mosiah. And it's not just once. It's over and over and over again. So anyway, this is big picture stuff on the book of Mosiah. Bryce and I are going to go, as we go through the lessons in Come, Follow Me, we'll go a little bit deeper. But we really wanted to just spend some time looking at the overarching message of the text. I love what Bryce says is, hey, Noah blindness is a theme. And King Benjamin's giving you the antidote. But then what happens if you swallow the pill of Noah blindness? Well, Alma shows us how you can fix it. And the answer is Jesus. This is beautiful. Yeah, I love the book of Mosiah. It's complicated. It takes a lifetime to unpack. There's more there than we can ever get in one reading. It invites us back again and again and again. It's simple to understand, and yet its message is deep and profound for even people who spend their entire lives studying it. I love that about the book of Mosiah. Um, To me, it is one of the great evidences that Joseph Smith is not producing this text. There's just absolutely no way a 23-year-old in one draft— without making major revisions, 
could ever have produced this text. It ha- I have been a student of the Book of Mosiah my entire life, and yet I walk away constantly just amazed at the depth of it. But I bear testimony of its central message, and that is that Jesus, Jesus is the prevention, the cure, and the healing. I know that's true. He is the prevention to problems. He is the cure for when we have problems, mistakes we make, and he is the healing that comes when we seek him in our lives. I just, I stand as a witness that that's true. And with that, we'll see you next time when we get into King Benjamin's address. Thanks for listening.